I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Gary. Hey, Guy. How are you? I'm very well. I think this is this, this is rather apt having Jamie Callum on today I, for, for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, he's got this... Christmas album out, which is an original sounding Christmas album. It's an original album. with beautiful Nelson Riddle type arrangements. But all new songs, right? Yeah. All, all written by him. All, yeah, which actually makes it a genuinely interesting piece of work. Rather than your Michael Bublé kind of like, let's, you know, that kind of stuff. You know? Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, but also, given that this is, you know, Stephen Sondheim has just died, left us... Um, it's uh, it's apt having him on because this is a guy who's delved into the American songbook really successfully over the years, but also covered Sondheim in his career. Yeah, well, he's covered all sorts, but and also with a but he hasn't just sort of regurgitated. It's been a very very interesting sort of take on it. I mean, like his his Sondheim is almost sort of trip hop. It's really good. So we thought that we would definitely talk about music at Christmas because this is where we are in in the season and uh, the kind of I want to know what sort of records went on in your house guy over that period what did you get for the under your Christmas That's tree a good point I, d- I can't remember anything uh, uh, Christmas Christmassy musically no but you know there were albums that came out I'm going to tell you mine in a minute when go, Jamie go, comes okay. on because we'll ask him but you know what was the f- album under your Christmas tree that your there parents was- might have bought you Oh, I see. Oh, that, it would be something that I asked them. Yeah, I asked them yeah, to, you yeah, know. Yeah. It was more the other way around. It was more that I used to buy my mum albums that I wanted. <laughs> and and so, I remember I bought her Rough Mix by Pete Townsend and Ronnie Lane. Saying, yeah, you'll, you'll love this, mum. It's right up your yeah. street. Mum, <laughs> here's Gentle Giant. <laughs> <laughs> Um, What's yours then? What's yours? But let's have a chat with Jamie about Sondheim, about Christmas, about his new album and about his career. Yeah. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. How are you doing? Good. There you, you are. Oh, there my... I am. Wow, look at you. Does it look... It, do you know what? It, it looks posh by accident because my, my laptop died. <laughs> Um, and uh, I thought, I thought I can't do it on my phone, so I plugged in a posh camera into my studio computer that I record on, and so it looks all fancy. That is a super well, posh you, so you, camera. That is so posh. That is like a like an eight camera zoom. Well, it's shoot. a long it's a long lens, isn't it? I mean, it's it is, it's a it's a long lens. I, I use it for we use it for filming stuff here in the studio, and I quickly googled how to because I thought, well, 
you know, it's nice to be able to see each other's faces, isn't it? So, um, yeah, I, I hooked it up to the computer, downloaded some software, looked through it, and I'm like, oh, that looks pretty nice, isn't it? Oh, mate. <laughs> I think we need need to negotiate the release terms for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and, and where... like, well, I'm, I'm very, very inexpensive. Which part of the room is Stephen Sondheim sitting in? <laughs> so, oh, did I say Stephen Sondheim? Well, I, I met Stephen Spielberg. Yes. Oh, but... He's upset. He's, uh, we're, we're on a bit of a Sondheim yeah, we... tip here because we, you know, because obviously we're Yes, yeah, we mentioned course. him earlier, and sorry, that's why I, I flipped into that because because obviously you you covered Stephen. This is the you know Stephen has just died, and we wondered if um, you know what your thoughts were on this great man. Well, I think one of the true modern greats. Uh, there's there's no there's no side to that, is there? Because I think when someone produces that amount of work consistently over the years of such an, a huge amount of quality. They surely have got to go into the realms of being like a kind of a Mozart or a Beethoven or a, or a, a you know a great kind of classic composer. And I don't even mean in the musical sense because actually, a lot of the music was far from classic, um, you know. And I think massively respected by everyone who worked with them. There's no no one saying a bad word about. It. I know people don't tend to. Well, I mean, people do when someone passes on, don't they? But um, I can't uh, wait. Can't wait. I keep this. <laughs> I keep discovering things of his that I haven't picked apart. And, um, you know, the, 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 that song, uh, the giant song from Into the Woods, I'd never listened to properly before. Oh, and yeah, yeah, um, yeah. again, they're just, they're just individual gems in huge gem palaces. It's, yeah. yeah, amazing. I went to a master class of his in the night. Gary and I were writing a musical together. Yeah. And, uh, and it was extraordinary. It was at the Royal Academy. And all these students had to get up and they'd do a song. And then he was with him sitting there. And then he'd say to them, okay, what do you think it's about? And they go, oh, well, I think it's about this. And, and every time, he'd just go, no, that's not it at all. Mm. And it was a bit unfair. It's almost like he was so clever. Yeah. He could just do what he wanted. And, and he would just turn around the meaning of these songs. And, and half time, I, don't, I think he was just making it up on the spot just because he could. Yeah. But it was just a, a level of genius and understanding of his own So did you guys finish this musical? We did, we, we, well, we did. Yeah, yeah, we did. We, 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 one got, one got uh, put on at the, by the National Theatre sort of youth. Uh, yeah. And it's still performed. It's called uh, Bed, what, what's that? Bedbug. It was, a, it was um, an adaptation of Mayakovsky. Uh, he wrote a musical with, he wrote a play called Bedbug when the music was done by Shostakovich originally. Mm. And we adapted it with a guy called Snoo Wilson, a playwright called Snoo Wilson, no longer with us. Yeah. Uh, and it and it gets done by the youth theatre um, every now and again, and we go we popped along to. In fact, the very first time it was done at the National was 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 exactly seventeen and a half years ago when my wife went into labour that night with our first child, That's and I right. said, "We're not going to the hospital until this is finished," and I've been up on stage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, has, has she has she forgiven you for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but my boy, that that boy who was born that night is an uh, incredible pianist, incredible, oh, and there you he's going to go, he's gonna go off to university stars, isn't it? to do music. Brilliant! Oh, how cool! Being alive is my favourite Stephen Sondheim uh, oh, song. Yeah, the lyrics are yeah. unbelievable. Unbelievable! Yeah, everything about every, everything about that song is. Um, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because when you are a songwriter, and you hear another song that you love i don't know about you but my first impulse is to listen to it but i also want to learn it because it's a it's a bit like people who like taking apart cars classic cars or something or someone who loves electronics and they go oh let's take this apart i love to do that and then as soon as you start taking it apart 
you feel even more, I find, I feel even more insignificant. And I go, oh my God, this is even cleverer than I thought it was. Yeah. When you realize how the lyrics hit with the melody and the chords and just how the chords are informing what the, what the lyrics are in them and the, yeah. all that. He wrote these songs with such symmetry with their, with their achievements. They were similarly high in their achievements with every, every aspect of it. And it's, it's just kind of dazzling really. Yeah, don't you find though when you try and deconstruct songs like the songs that really get to you, they're either much simpler or much more complicated yes. than you actually think they yeah, are. Yeah, sure. absolutely, absolutely. And, and I always learn so much he, about it. He, he, I, I, yeah. I don't think this is this is wrong for me to say because I did hear this via a, a friend of his. But uh, he, the night he he the night he passed away, he 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 had a Thanksgiving party and it was a dinner party and uh, and all his guests left and Stephen went to bed and never woke up amazing but Brilliant. you know perfect in a way no. you know i uh, yeah i've had anyway I, I've, I've had to lunch before he died uh leslie brickus because i covered one of his songs if i ruled the world and actually i did do pure imagination as well but i uh, um the, the one i kind of i guess did a really version i was particularly proud of was if i ruled the world and it's amazing to chat to him and he also had a long life and by all accounts i think something about songwriting and being engaged in something you're really passionate about can lead to quite a uh, a long, interesting life in in, in some situations. Anyway, let's talk about you, Jamie. Oh, Sorry, we that's, don't, that's, that's not <laughs> as interesting. <laughs> I've got to say, you're one of the few people we've ever had on this show where I can say I've interviewed you before. Go on. Where, where did was, that happen? Um, guy, you forgot. He can't oh, remember, sorry. Guy. He has no yeah. memory of it. <laughs> no, of course he doesn't. <laughs> if he did, I, I'd, it would be weird. Was I drunk? I'd be, well, no, I was. Okay. It was um, It was backstage at the Brits in 2009. Oh, wow. And I had this little studio set up. It was for this, what was meant to be an online magazine thing. And you were absolutely charming. Oh, well, that's good. So, yeah, there it is. And I've and met I you. was utterly forgettable. I've <laughs> met Jamie a few times. And he, I bet he can remember me. I, I, I can, I can remember you. Most people who've met you can remember you, though. This is an incredibly you, mature well, chat though. we're having, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Listen, we 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 got to talk about Christmas because we are actually almost at Christmas, uh, yeah. or we're in the Christmas season. Fact, yes, this should this should be the Jamie Cullum Christmas special rock on. Brilliant! Turns. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> and and this amazing record you've made of new Christmas songs, which yeah, is which is. Thank brilliant. you. With brilliant arrangements. Because I, 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 it's the sort of thing, this is something I want to talk to you about, is because uh, I worry the fact that you grew up with hip hop and all that, and then just sort of veered off to jazz, and then, you know, and, and from that, and then sort of came back to pop. But, but I love this idea of, because I have this fear that, that complicated music is vanishing. Mm. So I just love the fact that, that that this can still happen. We can still have beautiful Count Basie type arrangements. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was uh, the whole thing was it, it kind of came about in quite a surprising way because, like everyone, my touring got cancelled last year. Um, well, why was that then? Well, <laughs> Sorry. I had a cold. Yeah. Um, we were four days into the tour, you know, I'm, and I'm I'm not saying that for any kind of because I know everyone's got the same story, particularly in, in this business. But I kind of got home and. I was like, well, what, you know, what, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, I just released quite a, quite a, a, a long kind of personal originals album. And I thought about making a Christmas album for a while, but I didn't want to do the obvious thing for me to do would be do something a bit like what Michael Bublé's done, you know, with the big band and the classics and stuff. And um, I think he's obviously done that masterfully well. Those chestnuts and, are pretty well roasted, aren't they? Exactly. And I thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do that because there's no, no it's, it's not going to be better than that. And it's not, there's no who needs you know he's done it and what's the point so 
Um, I'd worked with Robbie a year before, and he'd done an album where he'd had the classics on one disc and the new ones on another. I thought, well, that's a good idea, I said. But uh, my theory was I would have to only do originals if people were going give to the give the new ones mm. any kind of chance, because I think if you mix them up, then people skip to the ones they know. So I thought, if I'm going to give these songs a chance to fly, then I'm going to just get in the zone. I'm going to write songs, obviously about Christmas, but within this kind of Tim Pan Alley, Great American Songbook era of songwriting that I feel like at this stage I know really well. Um, and I've written a lot of songs like that, and I love to write like that. I thought, well, let's just write a couple and see where it goes. And two became ten. And then I went to my label and said, I, I've written ten original Christmas songs. They're like, oh, could you do some covers as well? I'm like, no. I'm not going to do any covers. I'm just going to do the originals. And I said, and by the way, no original, uh, sorry, no covers. And I want to do it in Abbey Road with a, a, a 65 piece orchestra. Is that okay? <laughs> and they were like, oh. And, On Christmas you know, Eve. Bless them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and we did. And, it, you know, my, my friend Tom Richards arranged all the music who I've been working with for years. And we have the same reference points. We referenced records that we loved and arrangements that we loved. And, made this album the piano man at christmas because i noticed that's sorry guy but because uh, i've read all the all the notes on it what's nice is that for it's like for every song you had a specific reference point that you yes. started from this like yeah ex exactly so um i think it was you know i i really believe that you're inspired by stuff that you, you that you love and i wrote a song called beautiful all together which was you know, it was trying to write a song a bit like Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, kind of like a, a ballad, melancholic uh, a Christmas song with some, hopefully some gorgeous harmony and gorgeous melodies, a kind of yearning song that takes you on a nice musical 251 journey. And uh, um, yeah, so they, they were they all kind of had yin and yang kind of versions of them here. So but, those are, those are chords he's referring to. This yeah. Time. When you, when you, when, understand. When, you, when you sat down to do this album, though, did you sort of... Did, jot down the different facets of what Christmas is about to you, to other people. I mean, obviously, it's not the same to everybody, especially at this time. You know, it's pretty. it can be pretty rough as well. Or did you take a bunch of Christmas songs you liked and sort of paralleled them up? No, it was it was it was probably more. I was in a bit more of a flow state than 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 that, and I could have done it like that. And there might have been another time where I where I would have done it like that. But knowing that I had three months to write these songs and then i thought well if it's going to come out this year but bear in mind this is the pandemic year uh, of last year i thought i'm going to have to write them all by june and then we're going to have to record them in july so i i you i think we all have a lot of inbuilt knowledge about christmas and christmas music i think literally everyone pretty much you know in the in the western world does and i just felt like if i focused on the melodies and some really good titles. I came up with good titles first. I thought, well, I'm going to write a song that sounds a bit like this, and this is going to be the title. And then I just started playing around with it, and gradually the lyrics came through, and I wrote a few lyrics down, and then I just kind of went through it, kind of taking a few of the cliches out here and there, adding in a couple of, you know, maybe slightly more subversive things than normally are in Christmas songs, and just I kind of went about it that way, really. It must have been odd doing it, in the summer, I remember yes, yeah. always going past Jamie Oliver's house in Primrose Hill <laughs> when when the Christmas tree and the decorations were going in in yeah. August. You know, exactly. <laughs> and his kids would be sweating in their jumpers outside. 
<laughs> did it did it feel a bit weird? Was your family going, hey, what's going on up there, Dad? It's Christmas. You know? Well, it, it, it was such a weird time anyway, wasn't it? Because, you know, bear in mind, my kids were doing homeschool, of course. I got They were seven and nine at the time. So uh, me and uh, my wife were, were, were helping them with the homeschool stuff in the morning. And then we'd try and get a bit of work done in the afternoon while they kind of played and were outside. And it was so warm. Uh, April, May, April okay. and May was so yeah. warm. And so I was literally sitting, I had the door open. I didn't even come up here to the studio. I was, I was in the house. I got an upright piano in the house right by the front door. Door was open, dogs and children running in and out. I had flip-flops on, shorts, <laughs> and I was writing songs about snow, turning on lights, Santa Claus, and all that kind of stuff. And somehow the incongruity of the whole, of the weirdness of the universe that was happening at that time, it just, it just happened. It, it was quite, I was quite magical actually. And in some ways, I feel like that all benefited it. And um, again, I've, I've never written ten songs so fully formed so quickly. There was none of them were sketches. They were written, although they weren't. The arrangements weren't written. The songs are written exactly as you hear, all just at the piano. I've got voice notes of every single one yeah. in their kind of entirety. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Brilliant. But does that also the, the problem you've got now is that your kids now expect two Christmases every year, <laughs> one in the summer. It's like the Queen's birthday, thing. isn't it? Yeah. Every, every, every day is Christmas when and, you're a child of that age. I reckon. And then let's yeah. just talk about you going into Abbey Road Two to record because Abbey Abbey Road Two is is famously the Beatles studio, and we're all buzzing about the Beatles at the moment because of Get Back being on. Have you seen it yeah. yet? Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's magnificent, isn't it, for us? Us fans and well, yeah. I mean, of course, everyone's a fan, aren't they? But now it's a great bit of great bit of film, isn't it? It's incredible. But it's just a fantastic <laughs> realignment, isn't it? To see that this beautiful, positive thing, and just to you know, and to hear them saying stuff you've read about for yes. years and years and years. That's you know, it wow, really it really, really hu humanizes them in a lot way. And again, yeah. at the time of their lives, they were in as well. I, I'm always, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, obviously, you know, you you guys have. Every time I meet Paul McCartney, I can't I can't believe how nice and normal he is. Yeah, <laughs> I can't believe. But I it. see Alexis Petridis gave it a really bad review in the Guardian. He said, "Oh, it's so long, it's so boring. Who wants to watch?" It's, but you know, we've been sort of brought up on Big Brother and reality television. We're quite happy just to stare at people gossiping, aren't we? No, but, no I've I've seen quite a few people like on Facebook and stuff. Quite a few. It's like the cool thing is to is to knock the first <clears> one. I could have taken nine hours of just that first one. The more, you know. It's <laughs> but let me just, let me just, let me just. I know we're we're here to talk to Jamie about Jamie. Yeah, I know. But sorry, I, we keep oh, going I, off. Sorry. I, I oh, just I've want to no say a, with that, trust a, me. A, a little bit about <laughs> my theory on on George because you know George walks out right now. We've always been told it's because Paul was a beast and he was mean to him. But George talks quite a lot early on about Eric and his guitar playing and Eric and is a, is this this new godlike guitarist along with Jimmy along with P along with the other Jimmy and suddenly George is feeling rather insecure i think about his he's he's not that guy yeah not and on top of that he's got eric back at his yes. house with his wife right so yeah. i think the cameras are on him yoko's eyes are on him he walks out he's just feeling not good about himself but i don't yeah, think it's, it's a Paul's very high pressure fault. situation isn't it and you're you're yeah. right actually there's surely some insecurity there and it's that makes a lot of sense, actually. That makes a lot well, of sense. Also, there's there's the other thing. One thing we've I certainly learned from this is that George was by far, uh, he was really not the only lead guitarist in the Beatles. John yeah. had amazing chops. I'm yeah. never aware of. Yes, that's true. You're right. Yeah. I hadn't really realised that before. Yeah. This is why you're quite right. 
but Paul just such good sounds, didn't they? The sound. I know. I know we talked about violin obviously... that violin bass is a bit crap. It's <laughs> <really good>. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, man. but hang on, hang on, because on it there's and I it's said... like sounds great when it's McCartney, but it, it's it, and you go, oh my god, it's McCartney and it's what he's playing. But if if so, as a bass player, if anyone else picked up a bass and it sounded like that, it would just be like, mate. Do you know? It's so funny. I've got I've got one I've got one here in the studio because I wanted to sound like that, and it just doesn't. It literally no, doesn't. Sound. I've actually you've got had to, it remade. You've literally as a, got to be Paul McCartney as a four-string tenor guitar. I've had it remade actually. It's oh, uh, wow. a restrung, which is uh, which is the way I play it. But no, I, I can't. I can't. I mean, who can play like Paul anyway? But, but, but so, guy, I took a screenshot and I sent it to you of the set list that's on top of the Hofner bass because you told me yeah. you you you. I, pl I played it, but it was yeah. I have I, I was um because the, my tech a uh, guy used to look after me with Pink Floyd is Paul McCartney's tech, Sid Price. And I was at a McCartney show and he said, come down. And he invited me down to the little cubbyhole at the side of the stage. He went, quit here. And he handed me the, the violin bass, right? With the candlestick park set list on it. I was like, oh fuck. And I've got it. But of course it's strung left-handed. So oh, I was yeah. holding it upside down. So I managed to work out an upside down day tripper. And then... <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, what was it? What was it like going in, in into studio two? There's a great sense of responsibility when you walk into that that room, isn't there? There is, and you know, I'm sure you you can both attest to this as well. I think there is like when when you go into any great studio like that, with you know, Capital in Los Angeles or or you know, any any of the really great studios. And I think for the first time walking into studio two this time to record something, you know, all this music. We knew we had a job to do. We had really two days with, well, we had one day with the big band really to record all that music. And uh, we just, it, we went in there with a job to do. And I think with well, going into Abbey Road Studio 2, it does come with all the iconography and the history, but it's also a great studio. And you know, you can get everything done there you need to do. So it was also the right tool for the job, if you know what I mean. So yes, it is this place that is, you can feel like it's a bit of a, a museum and just comes with everything. But there are certain studios where you can go in and record this amount of quite difficult, large music and it will be done. So mm -hmm. I went in there with that feeling knowing we had a job to do, but also like just how lucky. It felt like I'd given myself the best Christmas present ever. <laughs> All these amazing musicians, yeah. you know, we've been in lockdown and this was the first bit where it had been eased up and I'm like, inadvertently i've written the the um, an album with where i need the most musicians i've ever needed on one record i, I don't think that was by accident wow but there's also i mean because one thing that even we as bad don't have don't know is the experience is the sound of a big band in a room is just the most joyous one it's like it's there's nothing else that sounds like it no. yeah it's it, it, it I, I, t I totally agree i think obviously with with, a, with an orchestra with with uh with uh, uh, violins and, and woodwinds and something, that's that's like a warm bath. Um, I think the uh, the big band is. Uh, I'm trying to think of a of an analogy of the big band. Yeah, you're but, right. Um, the warm bath, and I know what you mean about. I don't know where we go from there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's uh, that combination of all all those all those uh, all that kind of wind going through metal. Um, yes, the brass. It's just the, the brass. You know, it's just it's impossible. It's 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 impossible to be sad. Talking yeah. about what what Chris <laughs> talking about Christmassy things and what they mean to. It's it's it's. I remember seeing the Glenn Miller story as a kid and really loving that film. The sound of that big band in there. Mm. And they always used to seem to have, always had it on at Christmas because because someone died in it and you're meant to you know yeah <laughs> so, so be sad. But but. 
did you sit down with that orchestra, with the, with those players, and sing along and play along, or did you do that as a separate overdub? And how did you put the album together? No, so we did um, we did a, a the kind of central part of it for real. So um, we do a couple of run throughs. I would be in the room with everyone, and there was a piano kind of cordon off in the corner. And then on some, I would sing in a booth next to where they were. And my friend Tom was conducting, who arranged the music. And then there was uh, sometimes a piano player uh, who's far more gifted than I am, a guy called Ross Stanley, playing the piano uh, if I needed to be up in the control room. And then sometimes I came down to do it. So a lot of it was done together. But the nature of these kind of records, you do end up designing some of it afterwards. But the central nucleus of it all is always done live for me because I feel otherwise you've got nowhere to build on. So I would say mm -hmm. you could have heard it immediately after we recorded it. And most people would hear it sounding almost the same. Wow. And that is the level of the musicianship that we were dealing with. In but that what about room. vocally? Did you re-record some of the vocals as well? Or were you just uh, like... Some of, some of them. So I'd probably say about half and half, but I'm, I'm pretty wedded to the original performance in that type of music as well, you know. Obviously, the Sinatras and the Nat King Coles and the Tony Bennetts and the idea of them doing the vocal afterwards. I mean, it's like Frank would have been out the door before they finished the song, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think, I don't think that's just, I, I think that's because he, the integrity of that performance, and look, I've done it a million different ways and there's totally a reason to stay and craft a vocal and, and, and do it and, you know, comp it and make it into something that is designed to the song that you don't get in the moment. But... With this type of music, I think grabbing a performance with the uh, with the band creates creates a sense of liveliness, and I think is what gives this its liveliness over other big band orchestral albums. There are a lot out there; a lot of people do them, and sometimes oh, yeah, I wonder why they feel so a bit tame to my to my ears. And that's not saying that, but you know, I love the original recordings, and I think that's because they were in a room; they weren't. There weren't loads of screens between everyone. They were in a room. They kind of mixed it by where they were standing in the room half yeah, the time, yeah. you know. And, and I, sometimes I think that adds the, to the, players, the, the electricity. That's the thing. I was that because I've got right one of my favourite things. I got it for my for, actually for Christmas. I got it for Christmas when I was twenty six from my mum, and it's the Capital, uh, it's Sinatra, the Capital Years box set, all vinyl. Yeah. And the sound of those because the funny thing is because you'd still use the same mics. Mics haven't got better since then. Yeah. You know, you still want those mics. And it, it's almost like when, when, with the advent post-rock and roll, it's almost like we forgot how to record and had to learn all over again because those records still sound, you know. I mean, your, your record, sort of the idea is to sound as good as one of those. Exactly. You know and that, that's, the, that's, where you, that's where you kind of put your, put your flag in the sand and you try and yeah. obviously you fail. But at the same time, it's a, those guys knew and actually the, the, the guys that we chose, to, the guys and girls that we chose to play on this uh, album, they know how to play to for that music to sound that way. And it's a combination of how you voice the chords, how you play towards the microphone, where the bell of the horn is, um, the volume blending with the other instruments, where you sit in the room, where the drummer sits in the room. It's it's a you know, if you'd looked at the way we'd recorded it, it didn't look like most orchestral settings because we were basing it off the way we've seen Count Basie record and the way we've seen Duke Ellington record because they're the kind of nerds we are. But and, the but know, the red light the is on you. I can talk to about it. But the but, <laughs> but the but the red light is on you, isn't it? Because you've got to deliver the vocal, and these you know you want it to be a one take. I have to say, the vocals on the album are fantastic. I mean, some of those notes you reach oh, towards the you. ends of some of those big songs are phenomenal. Well, um, that's really thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And it's um, 
I think obviously because I'd written them um, and because I wasn't singing standards, it's not like I was thinking, oh, Tony Bennett does this here or Frank does this here or Nat King Cole does this here or Ray Charles or whatever. Um, I was like, well, these are, you know, these are brand new. And I think I lived, I was living inside those songs. And I felt as we were making this record, it felt just, it just felt special. It felt, I'm sure you can attain to this as well. Sometimes when you're recording things, you don't know what it's going to be. While we were doing this one, we were all like, this is going to be, this is going to be a thing. This is, this people are going to like this and this is going to be around a while, you know, and whether that is all true or not, I don't know, but it was, a, there was a really good feeling in the room and it could have been post COVID. I don't know, but we, we felt really good. While we it's were doing it's it. funny how our Christmas, our sense of Christmas is a mixture of Victorian horror and drama <laughs> mixed, mixed with war films, mixed with, mixed with <laughs> Jewish American guys writing the American songbook Christmas for us. You know? Exactly. I know you're, you're, you're entirely right. And actually I think that's what's so brilliant about Christmas music, particularly have yourself a merry little Christmas. You know, when you read the original lyrics, they're incredibly sad. Even Frosty the Snowman, it's, if you go back to the original lyrics, it's all about Frosty dying, you know, and how we're all, we're all on planet Earth for such a short amount of time. We're basically all melting away, you know, yeah. so have, have fun in the sun while you're still around. I think there's a lot of that melancholy tucked into these Christmas songs, which is definitely something I wanted to reference as well. You know, that sense of time passing and, you know, there being an empty seat at the table one year and it's like, oh, goodbye, old Granny Sue and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's it's very present. And I think yeah. last Christmas, this Christmas, that is going to be even more present for families. Of course it is. You know, everyone, yeah, yeah. most people I know have lost someone in the last two years. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. What about Christmas? We were talking earlier. I was talking to Guy earlier before you came on about about what what music you got oh, at yeah, Christmas. Yeah. What was your? Did you used to get any gifts at? Was there any music that so reminds you the most? It was a household you were in, wasn't it? Was a musical household, but you know, I, I've got to give credit to my uncle, my mum's brother, who would he would come over. He, he's lived all over, but he lived in Germany and Sweden. He would he would come over at Christmas and he would kind of deliver some deep, weird jazz record for my kind of collection from. Herbie Hancock to Pat Metheny to uh, 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 Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers and stuff like this stuff that and my mum and dad did love jazz but he, he had a kind of next level kind of knowledge about it and he so could play a little bit as well. Is that when you were really young? Yeah, so of... 10, 11, 12. I that is say. challenging for that. Age. That's okay. So, so jazz but was I'd... coming into your life. Uh, it uh, was coming into my life because my my mum sung a bit. My mum and my uncle would sing and play together. You know, after a couple of drinks as well. And my mum always loved Billie Holiday, and she'd sing a couple of Billie Holiday things. And um, my uncle could play things on the guitar. I was learning rock guitar at the time. You know, 
were really just playing like blues and 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 ACDC and my brother and I would do like Iron Maiden guitar offs and stuff like that and he would come and he would play these incredibly refined chords you know really just kind of major sevenths and you know just just adding a couple of extensions I'd be like oh my god what's that you know and as soon as someone plays a chord to you if you've got an ear for it that sounds richer than anything you've heard I was just like, can you show my tiny fingers getting around my little mini guitar, trying to kind of play a couple of these uh, uh, chords. And I think that that was my kind of way in just wanting to play those extra rich chords on the guitar. The major ninths and the major Yeah, sets. exactly. All that, that stuff. Yeah. That's something I really want to get into because what's, um, because, because, you know, you're a, you're a, a very fine jazz musician, but you, you come from that sort of, I know you, you have piano lessons, but you never learned to read. Right. Yeah. And so you come from that, basically the sort of, the same school as all, all us pop musicians, you know. You went to the Royal Academy of Bedroom. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then, and then, but, but and then we all we all yeah. stopped. We all yeah. stopped, and you kept going. Yeah. <laughs> some some of us get stuck in the bedroom doing other things for far too long. <laughs> I'm sure there was a bit of that as well. But um, I, I I think I was enthralled to kind of musicianship, and I think I'd started getting gigs so young that I saw the kind of payoff from a bit of practice and learning songs. And then some older musicians took me under their wing. And so I was, I was playing harder stuff than I probably was able to from, from a young age. And I kind of never, that never stopped until this year when I started having lessons finally this year. No. I've been taking lessons all year, yeah. Stop now, you're gonna break what was good. Nah, not, not <laughs> at all, it's, it's so fun. It's so fun, I'm, I'm also not doing it for my own, but I'm just doing it for fun, it's so yeah. interesting. Are you doing classical? Or? I'm doing um I'm doing harmony and jazz theory and just like learning how to refine a few things at the piano. It's just, it's really I had the time this year, you know. Again, no touring and didn't really feel like jumping in to write another entire record just yet. I have been doing a little bit of writing, but I saw my kids learning on Zoom last year and I thought, well, why can't I do that as well? So I called up a professor of music at, um, at the academy and, and he's been teaching me on Zoom once every two you weeks. Know, I was reading a book on, I swear to God, last week, I was reading a book on guitar scale theory in bed. Yep. But I was like, what What are you doing that for? You know how to play the guitar, but it's, it's you know. It's so funny. I've been doing, exa I've been doing exactly <laughs> the same thing as well. I think, when you you know we're obsessed aren't we we're i've been doing just... exactly the opposite and <laughs> I, I i and i literally thought right lockdown absolutely and, and i did the, i was doing these youtube videos where i was revisiting all these sort of records i played on before and i thought well th actually this is the time to learn all the stuff you didn't back then and i signed up for an online sight reading course and, and all that stuff nah. yeah nah. It's none of it happened. no no none of it happened well, yeah, he hasn't got the know, patience, got, mate. I'm going to finally learn Teen Town. Nah. It's got to be at the right. It's got to be at the right time, hasn't it? And I yeah. think if if, 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 your if that wasn't the right time, that wasn't the right time. <laughs> Somehow it was. It was the right time for, for me. And I think it's just I'm a I'm a weird obsessive character that most musicians I know are. You know, but, uh, Jamie, when you when you were this this kid who was deeply interested in jazz and being a musician and playing, was that a reaction? Was there how do other? What I'm basically saying is, how do you have any mates when you're when you're like that? I mean, I because because well, the, no, it's what's, this, this is what's interesting because apparently it, it it was parallel, wasn't it, to being into very you know a lot of cooler music, drama. Yeah, no, it's exactly. I was. I think it started off basically. I was mostly into the music my peers were into, and I, you know, I was one of the kids that could play Nirvana's Nevermind album from top to bottom at a school campfire or whatever. Um, I could play, you know, I could learn things on the guitar quite quickly, not particularly well, but I could play. And 
that was a great way of like, I mean, it was, it was my crutch. You know, we all have a teenage crutch, don't we? It's like you're the sports guy, you're the something guy, you're the, the, the tall one or you're the good looking one. You know, I was, the, I, was the, I was the one who looked about nine years old, but I could play the guitar. Yeah. Um, and uh, Yeah, which I'm sure you hated then, but I bet you're loving it now it's definitely not it's definitely not too bad now but i know it's going to change and my friend said to me the other day when I, when I turned up to dinner and someone said oh you look so young and and she said she said go on she said admit it if someone doesn't say that to you when you walk in a room you're disappointed aren't you and i said no that's not true at all i looked so young for so long um but uh it's uh it's it's it is it is what it is isn't it that 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 whole that whole thing but Playing the guitar was definitely my way of getting over a bit of teenage, um, of needing, you know, a bit of teenage power, uh, over in just in some way. And so, yeah, I was playing uh, all the music of the day. I was in little hip hop bands and rock bands, and I was just in all those kind of things. So it was all, mm -hmm. as you say, it was all parallel. My musical interests were all parallel. So when you're putting this first album together, did, what made you think I can sell records doing jazz? You're doing the American songbook because did you or was that not on your mind? This idea of succeeding in a in a genre that, you know, it wasn't it was it wasn't really happening. Yeah, I, I can safely say that it wasn't on my mind. And I think that was possibly part of the secret because, you know, I grew up in I was born in Essex. I was I grew up in rural Wiltshire. My dad got a job in Swindon. My parents were both first generation immigrants. You know, I didn't. My life had no connection to the media or music world in any, not even close, you know. Um, and so, and I, I wasn't, I was in school plays and stuff, but I wasn't the kid in front of the mirror with a hairbrush as a microphone. I loved and was enthralled to music and I loved music, but it didn't, I, I didn't really think I would be a musician for a living. I went to uni, I did English, I did film. I, I wanted to do something creative, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And music always seemed like it would be this thing I would do. And I would always do, but so when I made my first album, it was to sell at wedding gigs. Um, I was doing wedding gigs and people would always ask me if I had a tape or a CD. And I thought, well, I can make an extra 10, 20 quid here each gig. And so I, I made the CD with the band I had at the time of just, just standards called it heard it all before. And I got my uh, friend, um, I really good, she's still a good friend of mine called Kate. She, uh, wait, wait, so where'd you get cover. the money? Where'd you get the money? Student loan. Wow. I use my student. I use my student loan. We had Arthur I, Baker I, on the other day. Who got his did his first album based on his bar mitzvah money, didn't he? Which yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I loved. <laughs> I'm intrigued by your band. Who, I mean, who's your? I mean, are these kind of like jazzers? These guys are a lot older than you. A lot more. I mean, who... well, back in those days, I was playing a mixture. So a lot of the people that took me under their wing were in their 60s and 70s who didn't read music at all, but really knew jazz, and they would show wow. me stuff. So. I was playing all around Swindon, all the little villages around Swindon and different pubs at these old man jazz pubs. And, hmm. um, you know, they really, they were so excited. There was this young guy that was into this music, could play a little bit of it, but, and I could also sing, you know, so I did a lot of that. But my band now is people I've been playing with a long time who are all a similar age or younger to me. And the truth is the jazz industry these days, the musicians, they're all getting younger and younger. And they're so 19, 20 year olds, all the information is out there. They are so unbelievably gifted it's like i'm, I know. I'm, a, I'm a minnow you, you know, see I'm them on in, in terms of you technique. see them on in, you see them on instagram don't you they're all yeah, going to berkeley yeah. and stuff and they're just phenomenal players yeah. exactly yeah and you can't you know it's it's to be celebrated rather than than you know being feeling insecure about because it's um you know jazz everyone knows that obviously jazz you need some kind of technique but you know there's nobody wants to hear a song like this jazz technique not not even the great jazz musicians and 
you know, uh, yeah, you, you just have to hear uh, two bars of Miles and you know that, you know. Yeah, but also, I mean, the thing to remember is, is the more great musicians there are, it's like you need people who are going to pull them together, not yes. necessarily just have great musicians around, you know. So exactly. You're, you're the, you know. But I think, you've, I think yeah. you've, you're missing something out here, Jamie, because, because obviously you're talking about chords and beautiful chords and your piano playing, etc. But what really stood you out from the crowd was your voice. And yeah, your, which, which is way, way belies your years. You know, and... Yeah, from f- really but, early on. Well, I think what it is... Is, is a sense of expression that you have. And, and I think there's, there's the actor in you. There must be, you must, <laughs> you could have been a great actor, right? Because you're, you're a good impersonator, but you're also really good at capturing emotion. And that all comes through in your voice at such a young age. I mean, you're what, you're 19 when you're making your first record or something? I don't know. Uh, that's, that's, that's really, I've not heard anyone put it like that before. And I think, um, I think I would possibly, we get a bit psychological for a second. I think I was probably expressing quite a lot of, um, of generational stuff that was kind of coming through from my grandparents, who uh, my grandmother yeah, was. That's uh, quite a story, isn't it? Your grand. You yeah, know, she she was a Jewish. Um, uh, she was from Prussia. It's now part of Poland. She she was Jewish and escaped the Nazis and ended up in uh, Jerusalem, where my dad was born. My mum was born in Burma. Her father was Indian and Burmese, and they all kind of came over here you know for for different reasons but with with nothing and kind of start started off with with nothing and there was a lot of um a lot of kind of unacknowledged you know storytelling and pain and all that kind of stuff that's in the culture so, as well isn't it absolutely so i think maybe maybe there's maybe there was quite a lot of there in 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 me that i didn't know about but i think also um it mimicry is a huge thing in any artist's path i think and i've come to an, an, appreciate that more and more and really i i saw harry connick jr on like the equivalent of lorraine while i was getting ready for school one morning my mom just had it on and i was like who's that guy playing the piano you know this had this new orleans accent he was kind of dressed in a suit not like the normal music i would listen to but i thought he just seemed cool and he wasn't doing the when harry met sally stuff he was doing that professor long hair dr john kind of piano mm. stuff and singing and really kicking the piano uh, uh sustain pedal with the heel of his foot and slapping on the piano and singing a bit like sinatra and then a bit like dr john and but playing a bit like thelonious monk and the blues people and the jazz people it kind of wow. blew my mind and i got into him and then into lots of other jazz people through him and i think those early recordings i probably was just trying to copy him to be honest and then yeah. I found my own voice through trying to copy people like him. Well, I'm also wondering, because it's interesting that Gary mentions the acting thing, because you were studying film. I was studying film. I and if that informed that in any way, that's sort of because you're seeing visual, like proper real life storytelling. I always used to find acting a bit awkward when I did it at school. And I would see people who I think really inhabited what they were doing. And I would, there would be an internal voice in my head going, you can't do this. This isn't real. You're not very good at this. And the opposite happens when I'm doing music. My, I don't have an internal voice when I'm playing music. I mean, sometimes <laughs> I do, but mostly I feel like I don't have to think too much when I'm playing. I think I can really, I can really stay present in the moment when I'm, when I'm playing. And I never found that when I did the little bit of acting that I've done, but, um, I think it's that uh, being drawn towards creative arts in general was something that I couldn't, I couldn't escape, and whether th- it was film or music or anything. I think this idea of mimicry that you mentioned is it, that this is something interesting in that because you, it's a great form of defence as well, because you can say things, be things that you're not, or st- you can reveal yourself through another identity. 
So you sit yeah. at the piano, you, you've got this American accent, like most of us have when we sing, you know. You're somebody else. So yeah. it makes you braver to, to reveal your emotions yeah, and to challenge those right. idiots out there that we all have in our life, right? Yes, yeah. No, that's, that's, a really, um, that's a really elegant point. And I think it takes, it would take a musician to point that out and it would take another singer to point that out because you do, you know, I certainly found like I was, I was quite, um, I was a very agreeable, meek child really in in retrospect i was very well behaved and almost to a fault to some degree and it was through music that i discovered discovered the every every bad boy impulse that i I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd never kind of explored and music was the conduit to all of that and it was it was you know it was it was great because we all need a bit of light and shadow don't we and you know music was my was absolutely my my route into that and my route into exploring things that were a lot harder that weren't talked about in my family for obvious reasons. And um, I think, you know, it's what how music's functioned for, for, for generations, for mm -hmm. cultures and people and in my own way. And I, I know it doesn't sound like that kind of growing up in a village just outside of Swindon, but actually there was a lot of complicated stuff that had come before me that was suddenly in that house in, for many generations. And, you know, a lot of that comes out through music, I think. What was the turning point then for you from going from this kid selling wedding albums? How did, <laughs> how, what was, who was the first? Because no guy, guy was saying to me earlier that um, when we were having Michael, a chat before. Michael Parkinson champion. You got into the, the Pizza Express circuit, didn't you? Yeah, so I started doing the Pizza Express circuit. Basically, after a while, I realised there was, I hadn't noticed anyone else who was a young man singing these types of songs and bear in mind this entire time i was in every other type of band you can imagine from a you know heavy metal bands to to hip-hop bands just, i was playing did any, any of those band. people go anywhere did any of those other bands go anywhere is, is um, there anything where you could have i was oh, in no, a band i could have been in muse i don't know <laughs> i was in a band that there's a really talented uh, uh, singer songwriter who still releases his own music called alexander wolf i was in his band for a while that that was oh. the one that could have gone somewhere so he he's he's fantastic he writes a lot for theater now as well but um you should check him out if you haven't heard him he's really really good but i at that point i think i just noticed that i was getting a lot of gigs more gigs than i could than i could do every night of the week I could have been playing when I was at uni by the third year. And I think by that time I was like, look, I'm going to, I told my mum and dad, said, I'm going to finish uni and then I'm just going to play music for a couple of years. I'm going to try and travel and play music and see where I go with it. And at that stage, I thought, well, if I could end up playing someone like Ronnie Scott's that would, in 20 years time, that would be the, mm -hmm. you know, that would be the kind of goal. And, you know, maybe I could get a small record deal or something. So I was starting to, by the end of university, I was thinking, well, Let's give it a whirl. I went to work on a cruise ship for three weeks. I missed my graduation. Um, I played on a cruise ship and I'm playing in other bands. What was that like? What was that like? It was so fun. I had a brilliant time. <laughs> and absolutely, we did the Greek islands. We did the Norwegian fjords and we did uh, oh. uh, the coast of, uh, the, oh, one of them, I can't remember, somewhere somewhere in the coast of Europe. It was it was really fun. You know, I was, I was 20... 20 years old, 21 years old, you know, what it's like when you're playing music at, at that age. And it was just, it was wild. It was super wild. With, with free, playing music with free food. Is always, it's exactly. Just... It was amazing. <laughs> but it, it was after that. I but just the started, trouble is I, you, you know, can't eat. I moved to and... London and I couldn't, I just had gigs all the time, including at Pizza Express where I got free pizzas with, with my wage. And just gradually, just the momentum started to pick up and I ended up getting a small deal with the label Candid Records. Um, and that is where Michael first heard me played me on his radio show and then 
Sony and Universal started sniffing around, and at that it was at that point I just had a record deal with Universal. And I was on the Michael Parkinson TV show, wow. which happened to be the one where he fell out with Meg Ryan. Did he? Do you what's that the, one? No, I don't remember that. He had but a I'd... kind of fight with Meg Ryan on the show, and it was watched by like. 18 million, you know what TV shows used to be like. So you're day. thinking, oh, my little sh- my little piano playing's vanished now. But actually, in actual fact, it ended up as a focal point. Well, do you know what? I knew I, I knew it was a huge moment. Did you do a relevant it... song as well? You didn't do like kind of breaking up as hard no, to do? Or no, he no. started, no. Pl- <laughs> did, did you start playing the Benny Hill theme as they were having, do, right, chasing each other around the studio? <laughs> I should point out that I wasn't the house band like Laurie Holloway no. was, but um, yeah, 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 no, yeah. I played um, a song called You're Nobody to Somebody Loves You. And, uh, um, I remember feeling kind of terrified before and I was wearing a bad suit and I had a bad haircut, you know, all the, all the usual stuff. But I, I remember as soon as I was too. playing, I'd had thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours in piano bars, pubs where people weren't listening. All those, So as soon as I was playing, I was like, okay, I know how to do this bit. And it was watched by, you know, and before I knew it, my record was starting and then I released an album on Universal called 20 something. And that obviously became quite a big deal when it eventually when it came out. Yeah, you could say that. And you got a you, you got a massive you, you got a massive record deal, which is quite yeah. something at the time. I remember. Yeah, it was a bit more of a of a of a press story than the actual record deal. It was basically I had enough to pay off my student loan, and enough to pay off um, you know my and my my rent for the next. Jesus, kind of how few are you living as a student? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> exactly. Bullingdon Club. Kind the of million pounds was for was for the marketing spend. Right, so it's, right, so it's right, quite right. quite amazing that everyone said, "Oh, you got a million pounds?" Like, no, I didn't. I got about twenty five grand, yeah. uh, which was a huge amount, obviously for a, a you know a twenty two year old, twenty three year old, a huge amount. And then I got a publishing deal after that as well. So I I was all right after that. But it was I remember people, my mates, thinking that I was suddenly a millionaire, and I was like, mm, not quite, but I'm doing all right. It's pretty awkward. It's pretty awkward, isn't it, to have something mm. like that out yes. in the public domain? Yeah, for sure. How did you bring your own songwriting into this mix? Because obviously, you know, that your by osmosis, you've taken in the American songbook. Did you find that part of that mimicry was could also be used as as a songwriter? Yeah, fortunately, I'd started to include original songs on those earliest albums, just here and there. Mm. Uh, and it was always something that was there, but I, I didn't honestly feel like a songwriter for a long time. I felt like it was something that I would do by accident if I was lucky. And um, I, it wasn't until an album, probably an album I made in 2009, where I did quite a lot more original songs. I, I felt like I wrote some things that were really kind of valuable. Is that, is that the one you did in LA, isn't it? I did that one in LA and I wrote this song that's for what this Clint... That's I interviewed Clint... you about. Oh, that, there you go, yeah. That's the one I did in LA and it's I wrote this song um, for this Clint Eastwood film called Gran Torino and um, I, yeah. I felt around that time that I'd really started to have a handle on... I was becoming maybe less a jazz musician and a kind of interpreter and more of a, you know, I was moving towards concentrating more on songwriting. Would that be through Kyle Eastwood? Exactly, yes. It was, it was through Kyle. So... Um, he, uh, Carl um, Eastwood is Clint Eastwood's son, who's a jazz bass player. For our listeners, and you yeah, got a nom- you got a nomination for Golden Globe. For I, I mean, it was it was such a weird kind of turn of events. So I I wrote it with Kyle, and obviously Clint was one of the co-writers on that on that song, which was. So what did uh, you meet him? Was he in the room? What was the vibe? Yeah, so he he um I, I'd known Kyle for a bit. Most jazz musicians in London know Kyle because he's yeah. he's a great. Bass I meant Clint. I meant Clint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so I met Clint, Clint at the uh, Monterey Jazz Festival, which is the the one out where he used to be the mayor of Carmel, didn't he? So there's it's where that yeah. scene from Play Misty for me is is that very festival, 
Um, oh, so and he was sitting in the audience. So I, I met him there and then I worked on something through Kyle and his, his producer friend, Michael Stevens, on a film called Grace is Gone, which he did. He Clint also worked on the music for as well, although he didn't direct it. And then it was after that, that went really well. And then uh, Clint and Kyle came to me with this theme for Gran Torino, this opening theme. And I kind of completed part of the writing with them and then wrote all the lyrics for it and then kind of made it into a, you know, composed it into a song, basically. Did Clint Eastwood whistle a tune to you at any point? He did. <laughs> he, he he did, but he, he also sat at the piano and played that theme and did, did a sound, little whistle. Did it have a sort of Ennio Morricone vibrato? I know, I know, exactly. <laughs> I mean, all, all those things are going through my mind, believe yeah, exactly. given, given that I'm like steeped in jazz history, but also in film history as well. You know, yeah. these are my obsessions. It all, it all came together at the same time and it didn't feel real, but it did. It was a situation where I think 10 years before that I might have stacked it. I might have not been able to kind of rise to the challenge, but I think at that point, I felt like I was becoming a writer above and beyond kind of everything else that I was trying to strive to do. What was the song for you, Jamie, that you, where you went, this is, this is it now, I know how to do this. I have not had anyone else in the room. This has come mm. completely from me. What, what was that? I think it was this tune I wrote for my last album called The Age of Anxiety. Oh yeah, um, which is, yeah. Which, yeah, yeah, which is a very bold, it's a yeah, strong, I was gonna say bold, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's, yeah, it's certainly, to delves well they're all yeah. they're all words i really appreciate connected to the song because it's definitely i feel like it says something in a i feel like if a song can say something in a way that not the words on their own and not the music on their own can so kind of in, in their togetherness they make they make something that is greater than the constituent parts then um and also it wasn't a labored writing it was it, it's not that it, it took me a long time but it came out of me in a kind of authentic way and kind of now exists as something that almost feels like and exists as something as almost I feel like I didn't write it just it's kind of there now and whilst I would love to kind of recapture that I think sometimes those songs kind of come around and you know it's not a hit by any stretch of the imagination and I never expected it to be but it's definitely a song that I feel um is the the best kind of expression of my songwriting so far really that's amazing that it, it's come so late in your career, that, that sense that you're still on this learning curve and it's still going up, you know? Well, I mean, I think also it's the, the nature of being like a jazz musician at my heart because I think jazz musicians and songwriting, <laughs> they don't always go together quite well because you focus for quite a long time on technique and this kind of jazzness of things, which is a whole other kind of, it's like training for a different Olympic sport. And writing, you know, my whole world of writing is through the amount of reading that I do, the amount of lyric writing that I love and poems and um you know reading novels and making notes on novels and stuff it's almost like another thing and it just took me a while to have the confidence to bring those things together in a way that you see someone like alex turner doing at 17 yeah you know, i wasn't that yeah. kid at 17 i was a geeky muso kid playing like what dreaming about being a session musician you know alex turner was dreaming about being a rock star and writing lyrics for arctic monkeys that were mm. so sophisticated mm. and I, I just wasn't, that was not who I was at that point. I was, I was, you know, I'd still, I, I will, may never be that, but at the same time, I feel like I'm accessing more of that part of myself now. <laughs> but the, the irony, at 21. right. The irony is that your voice was very much that of a fully formed grown up person <laughs> when you were very young. Yeah. To some degree, I can, I can see what you mean. But also yeah, I think yeah. it's um, something else, say Alex, all right, you mentioned Alex and there he is in the Arctic Monkeys. He's surrounded himself by a band, right? You, you feel a lot more security in a band. I think you, you know, you, you can. Sort of, anything goes wrong, you go. It was him. He did it. <laughs> you know, it's his fault. 
Yeah, me you're usually. Out, you're out there on your own. You know, I actually yeah. think that's... That, is there an, ever a time when you it, you do feel lonely about this? That, that all the weight is on your shoulders. You can't but share any of those bad reviews with other people. If you get any, yeah. of course you don't. I mean, but I, you know I what I mean. I feel. I know. I really no. I, I I know what you mean, and I feel I feel very close to my band. You know, we are. They're my they're my best friends as well. You know, they're they're amazing people, and we we we're like another family. Yeah, give um, it time. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do feel you're right. It, it is like you don't the the successes are are great to take and like oh yeah it's amazing and you know, but the 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 when things don't work yeah you're kind of you're alone you're alone with that um and but at the end of the day it's still better than most other jobs you can do isn't it? <laughs> well exactly yeah but I mean you know there's two sides to that which is yes you have to take all the flack but then you get all the praise. Yes, but I did. That's true. You do. You do get all the praise. Like I did that, you know, um, uh, with with the age of anxiety. It's literally like I, I kind of I literally sat at the piano for for a few months and kind of wrote that song. And it's like, it's there's literally no one else involved. I mean, but, I would definitely credit my wife uh, with encouraging me to kind of delve deeper and be a bit, you know, be a bit more exploratory of myself and my music as well. So. Um, so she was definitely a big part. And are you well. taking this out? Well, you can't take it out on the road. You can't sort of be playing a Christmas album for the day, for, for into the summer. So what's yeah. the plan? Well, I've got, I've a got some of, Downing got Street a parties. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the part, the noise level is going to be so small that I, I won't be able to play it properly. I've got a couple of in stores with doing a couple of things on like Chris Evans and Joe Wiley and stuff like that. But uh, I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping to next year do like a week's residency somewhere where we play all this music and just kind of plan it way in advance and just sit in one place in maybe two or three cities for three or four or five days and, and do this music because it's, um, you know, assembling that band and playing this music That'd for the great. piano man at Christmas is going to be so fun. And, and the great plan obviously is, is that we hope that some of these become Christmas standards. You know, I think there is that hope. I think many, many people making Christmas albums now are hoping for exactly the same thing. And I think for me, what I've been aware of so so far is the amount of people that, um, you know, email me or tell me on social media that, oh, my God, we had your album on while we were putting up our Christmas tree. We had your album mm -hmm. on on Christmas Day and my granddad loves it. My son loves it. And it's like, I feel like it has infiltrated some people's homes. And actually, it's, it's ended up being a, a probably more successful album than I've had for years. And... I wouldn't have anticipated that at it, all. It's and when the songs turn up on Michael Bublé's album. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's true. Well, actually, he he uh, he very kindly got in touch with me to say how much he loved the album, so I thought that's a fairly oh. fairly decent stamp of approval, that, that's for sure. And are you working on new material now? I am. That would be my focus for next year. I, I don't know whether I'll have anything ready for next year, but um, I'm looking ahead. I've got lots of the gigs that were in last year, in next year, kind of peppered throughout the year, and I just want to write another kind of 10-track album inspired by the piano man at christmas although not a christmas album just really try and sit at the piano and write 10 fully formed things and then try and make something beautiful that has a little bit of this classic edge as well actually i think i'm going to try and do that yeah because your albums do also it's it's almost like you you sit down and each album has a very conscious direction to it yeah it? it's like right this album is going to be this and this is you know because it's you drifted into very much the um you know because you started with this real usp of being mm. the jazz guy and then with this mainstream pop success, you kind of drifted, your writing became very much more informed by the sort of singer-songwriter 
yeah. style of writing. And that's why I was really pleased that I, I love that, that you've gone back to writing full on jazz stuff. It's like, don't lose that. Yeah. Don't lose that. So, no, definitely. I think know. I'll always do a mixture. I think I'll always do a mixture of the two because it's just fun to write in different ways. But I feel quite inspired by by this kind of bringing this element, you know, maybe, you know, still keep the kind of pop ish aspect, but then really bring this uh, nicely composed kind of stuff uh, uh, that I've, I've done on this uh this Christmas album into some of my original non-Christmas music, non-denominational. Uh, do, do you <laughs> I think love this, my non-Christmas music? Do you think uh, something you, you expect to hear? And do you think yeah. do, you, do you do non-Christmas music? <laughs> Excuse me, guy. I'm trying to get the last question sorry, in, if I may. Sorry. <laughs> do you think? Because I know we're going to let Jamie go. But do you think um, writing on your own now is is all? is the only way forward because I know in the past you've written with people like Ricky Ross and yeah uh, it, it, no I love to write with other people I love to write with other people okay so like I'll be around that. to your house very soon <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love it and I think I think it's um I love writing on my own but I think you get different stuff working with other people and you never know what you're going to get whether it's a song for you a song for another artist or you just learn something new and I think I tried to go into co-writes with a sense, you know, you go in with expectation, you want to write something, but at the same time, you never know what relationships and what music it's going to yield. So no, I'm not a closed book in that sense at all. I don't care if someone else's name is on it. It doesn't have to feel like it's entirely mine because mm. um, I just don't think life and music works like that and neither should it. It's been great having you on, Jamie. Really, oh, really it's a great. thrill, guys. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honoured to be on your podcast. Aww. Thank you so much. Huh. Absolutely honoured. Thank you. <clears throat> and and, and uh, good luck I hope to see you out there. Good luck with uh, good luck with this album. It's it's really worth. Everyone should just download it. Make it your Christmas this year. Yeah, because it is. It's a genuinely proper good, you know, and new Christmas album. And so, actually, Jamie, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Do you know what I'm off to do now? <laughs> Go on. I'm off to record the Strictly Come Dancing Christmas Special. Oh. Can you believe that? Oh, that is literally. I'm, I'm literally going to walk out this door and I'm going to go and head off to Elm Street to do that. So have a lovely time. More Christmassy. Uh, brilliant. <laughs> have a great Christmas. Thank you for I coming will. on. Thank you so much, both. Great to meet. Oh, great to you. see you on like this. Yeah. See you later. Yeah, Bye. Cheers, Jamie. Cheers, Bye. guys. Bye. Well, that was delightful. It was, wasn't it? What a nice bloke, you know, really. What a, what a nice man. I did, I did worry that we were over some time here a bit at the moment at the beginning, but it was great. He, he went with it. He was very, very. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I didn't tell you, did I? What, 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 what albums I got for Christmas? I need to no, tell you. No, you didn't. That. No. God, you have you been waiting all through, all through that interview? <laughs> you were eighty percent talking to Jamie and twenty percent. Waiting to tell me what albums you got for Christmas. It was just there the whole time, wasn't well, it? Was you, weren't like, really, you weren't really present at all. It was actually more, more like 30%, really. <laughs> um, so my very first Christmas album was Electric Warrior, T-Rex, oh. right? Did you, you must have had that, right? Oh, you're a bit, you know what, I'm a bit older than you, and I'm two years older than you. No, 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 I had, um, no, that period, no, big, I, I hate to say it, I, I, I'm ashamed of it now, but... I was at that. I was at that age where you actually had to choose between Slade and T Rex, well, and I was Slade. Well, I got so so. Electro Warriors that that Christmas, seventy one, seventy two. I got Slade, S L A Y E D, yes, the Slade yeah, yeah. out for Christmas. I got Slade alive. I know you did, various lots of times. <laughs> and and Flayed. <laughs> I tell you what, there are two more. There are two more, and then I can't remember anymore come after on, that. So on. the following year, 73, uh, 71, 72, yes, I, I, I got Tales from Topographic Oceans. Oh, there you go. Oh, I got Tubular Bells. Did you? Yes. That's so Christmassy, isn't it? That's so Christmassy. It, it wasn't then, but now it is. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it is. But I'll tell you what's I mean, not Christmas. Christmassy, it was The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's got bells on it, you know. <laughs> but i tell you what's not Christmassy is what I got the following year, 74, was Yes's Relayer. So yeah, I was obviously right. a bit of a yes man for a while, but mum actually went to the record shop and bought Relay. Can you imagine what they thought? What kind of... A, this, this woman walks in <laughs> with, a, with pie and mash takeaway in one hand asking for Relay. Yeah. Uh, can I also just say, for the record, this is the fir- only time I've ever heard you describe yourself as a yes man. Because... <laughs> Because, boy, are you not. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, I'm going to see you before Christmas uh, actually arrives. Uh, so I won't wish you a Merry Christmas. But you won't anyway. I won't anyway. Um, That's uh, outside. That's mean. Sorry. Thank you for listening. We'll be back yes. next week with more. With our, yeah, with, with our... With the rock on tours hootenanny, I guess. I guess it must be. Until then, it's good night from me. And it's good night from them.